and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartsman. I'm Bianca Bremen. And I'm Lara Chan Baker. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast from the Jackie Winter Group. We're a creative production and representation studio based in Melbourne, Australia and New York City. This podcast is an opportunity for our two studios to come together each week and provide insight into the creative community from our unique point of view as the bridge between clients and creatives. Using the internet as our lens, we hope to explore a variety of current events, opinions, and tools to provide thought-provoking conversation for anyone whose job it is to bring creative things to life. Remember that this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using the Pocket Cast, Overcast, or Castro podcatchers, you can directly link to the articles discussed here as well as get enhanced visual content as we move along. This season, we're rolling on with our extended open tab segments that you know and love. This week, we'll be discussing farting unicorns, the fake Statue of Liberty, gender roles in design, and the elusive art of working with clients. Much like our IRL Open Tabs events, which you can find out more about at opentabs.rodeo, we're digging deep into our JW network of amazing people to contribute their own link and thoughts to each episode, and today we are delighted to welcome Carly Ayers to the studio as this week's special guest. A bit of background on Carly, she studied industrial design at RISD and then worked for Creative Mornings for two and a half years from mid-2012 as the chief content officer before becoming a writer and strategist at Google Creative Lab in New York. In September 2016, she co-founded Horaf, a interactive design and technology studio based in New York. From generative identity systems for orchestras that react to sound to mirrored selfie posters for dental startups, Horaf creates interactive communications for consumer-facing brands that help them engage and have more meaningful, authentic interactions with their end users. Carly has written extensively on the field of design for publications like Core 77 and Wallpaper and has spoken at conferences from Stockholm to Belfast on how to treat design like a conversation and why you should invite your audience to say something back. So Carly, today we invite you to say something back here on the podcast. How are you? And welcome. I am doing fantastic. It's a little toasty here in New York, but otherwise doing great. Glad to be here. B, you're there too. Do you agree with the toasty? It has been bloody hot. Oh, gross. It's like one degree here. Yeah, we're literally picking icicles off of our eyelashes at the moment. It's so it's like comically cold, like, you know, Jack Nicholson shining maze scene cold. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's bad. Terrifying. Anyway, we're going to get straight into our open tabs. And B, you are bringing us something very relevant to today's guest. Um, Mm. Why don't you get us started? Yes. So, Carly, my link today is one that I'm sure you are very familiar with as being one of three co-founders of Horaf. I'm sure you had a big hand in writing it. Um, So my link is called A Guide to Working with Clients, which was published on a wonderful website and resource called The Creative Independent, which offers emotional and practical guidance for creative people. And Carly... Your studio wrote this, and I love that your studio wrote this and published this. And even more, I love that um, being transparent about your process is such a big part of your practice and how you run your studio. So this guide, uh, a guide to working with clients, I would recommend for anyone who is running their own creative practice or wants to run their own creative practice or, um, you know, big or small, it offers very practical advice on understanding your value as a creative person and on setting up successful client relationships right from the start. But before we dive like a little bit deeper into some of the advice that you all so generously put together and put forward in this guide, um, especially around value-based pricing, which I'm super interested to talk more to you about. Carly, I'm really curious to perhaps understand why and how Um, transparency became such a big part of your practice. I mean, you've worn so many different hats from 
like within the creative industry from, you know, your role in content at Creative Mornings to um, your work at Google to um, being a writer and a columnist and not to mention touching on very many side projects that you seem to find the time to undertake. I mean, I owe a lot of my early gallery explorations here in New York when I first moved here to the art newsletter Untitled, which you contribute to. And of course, how could we forget Hundreds Under Hundred, which is the Slack community and IRL speaker series you run here um, in New York, which I'm very excited is coming back next month. Um, and I know that, I mean, if, just on Friday, you open up your studio once a month and invite whoever wants to join you to come in and learn from you and your co-founders and have conversations about design and about process. So, I mean, that's a pretty big resume. You do a lot of very different things. And I just am really curious as to why transparency is perhaps important to you and where maybe that came from. Absolutely. And uh, wow, you are incredibly kind. It's a uh... Wonderful to hear you list all those things off. I feel very flattered. You're one of my favorite people that I follow on Twitter. I will be honest. You've seen me through that. You've, this you've, a seen, moment. you've seen the spiral. It's been good. Yeah. So with this studio, and we started the studio about two years ago, um, a lot of the early conversations we had, and I met, I should say, I met all my partners while working at Google's Creative Lab. So that's where a lot of these early ideas began to take place. But we had all these ideas around ways of working and thinking that we really wanted to try out. And the studio seemed like a good sandbox to do that. Starting HaRef was really an opportunity for us to try out a lot of things that we had been talking about, uh, figuring out a lot of the mysteries of what it took to actually start and run a sustainable creative practice. It felt like even at my time at Creative Mornings and uh, as I moved to making the jump to freelance, that there were so many things that people weren't talking about. People had all these questions. Uh, what does it take to freelance? And how? when do you make that jump? And how do you interface with clients? Uh, a lot of things that we learned the long, hard, stupid way by starting our own studio, um, even working within various creative practices, and everyone had a very different background when we started, but no one had all the answers. There was a lot of knowledge that we felt like was kind of kept behind closed doors. And when we started to the studio, we were really committed to making sure that we opened those doors and shared the things we learned along the way because it was all stuff that we felt like we had to learn the hard way and it doesn't really make a lot of sense for us all to have to do that. The article itself, um, it's interesting that this is kind of being published from a venue that is being um, run by Kickstarter, is that correct? It's true. So the Creative Independent, I'm not entirely uh, knowledgeable about the actual nuances of how it's run, but I understand it to be supported by Kickstarter, yet it operates totally independently from Kickstarter itself. They don't run like ads for Kickstarter products. They don't really promote Kickstarter beyond that uh, little, act, that little uh, line at the bottom of the page. But it's all about creating creative pools for I hear kind of a lot of like interesting critique of these kind of um, programs where like, you know, you have these big tech companies like I know Dropbox has like Dropbox Labs or kind of these little enclaves of kind of design thinking or more experimental instances that exist within these bigger tech companies. But like, I think more cynical people in my kind of circles kind of 
define them as like real just recruitment, you know, like like propaganda arms, like for kind of their recruitment. But it's it's so hard to do because I kind of see that, but I also kind of see them doing really great things, like giving a platform, you know, for this kind of writing. I'm just kind of curious why this why you decided to publish it here and kind of not like you know through your own kind of independent sources like Medium or kind of somewhere else. Sure, and I would say I'd say different for Kickstarter versus some of those other tech companies. Uh, Kickstarter has that kind of dual customer. They have the people who are coming and backing projects as well as their actual user base who is using the platform to launch their own creative projects. So I think the creative independent works a lot as a resource for uh, that latter community, which perhaps doesn't exist as much with other uh, perhaps tech companies. But they actually approached us and Willa, who's an editor there. um, I've had a relationship with her for a while and she was launching this new guide series. And so she got in touch and asked if we would be interested in writing one. Um, I think for us, we've all, I have Google Docs on Google Docs of like things I've been thinking about since we started the studio. I just, I've been, I've been absolute shit at actually getting this stuff out into the world. So uh, when she reached out, it felt like uh, a good exercise in taking some of these things we've learned during the first two years and putting, I suppose, cursor to word processor. Um, and kind of just writing them down and sharing them. Laura, I'm curious to hear your feedback on this piece, because I mean, so much of when I was reading this is like, oh, yes, this is kind of everything that we basically do in kind of a given day. Um, Was there anything kind of surprising here or something that kind of resonated with you particularly? I think what I love so much was how, um, I guess, clear and and actually actionable a lot of this was. There's so many articles um, sort of out there on the on the big bad web sort of about how to work with clients and a lot of it is a bit wishy-washy and this was very like actually stepped out and and again Jeremy as Jeremy said like you know for someone who's working already within a larger practice or whatever this stuff is um might be sort of obvious or, or clear already but I think what uh particularly interesting to me is sort of how this could be resourced more for freelancers um who may not have had to deal with all of these sides, all of these aspects of a business themselves, um, they might have previously been only executing and not actually engaging with clients necessarily, um, at least not in this full range. And I actually shared this document with, document, this article with um, a friend of mine, Jeff Hamada, who runs Boom website. And um, he loved it. He was saying like, oh, I get asked all of these sorts of questions all the time. And I will now like very happily just send people here because it's, it's just like a really clear very accessible guide. It wasn't um, wanky in any way. And, and I really love that. And one of the other things, um, Carly, I loved in the guide, you linked to an awesome piece by John Lax from Tan Lax, which um, no longer exists, but um, he wrote really candidly about why they were getting rid of hourly rates at their agency um, and and shifting to a sort of to a value-based pricing model, which is a lot of sort of what we talk about on this show and what you talk about in this piece. Um, and, and what really resonated with me was where he was talking about the realization that the correlation between the amount of time that they spent on a project and the value of what they delivered was not always in sync. And they could see things that took very little time having very big impacts in their clients' businesses. And so, you know, really the time-based model encourages you to build in as many hours as possible because you're financially motivated to do so. But as a company, they valued being nimble and efficient and finding the best solution possible, even if that was a simple one. And in a time-based system, efficiency like that is punished, you know, in any system where hours are used to determine the price of the work. It's the agency's incentive to convince the client that it will take 
many, many hours and the client's incentive to convince the agency that it won't take that much time and all you're selling is time. And as John puts it, uh, we didn't get into this business to sell time. And I think what he's hinting at here and, and what you start to get into as well is that the you know we do the work that we do because we create things of value and that value shifts depending on the client, the audience, our experience level, and really all of those other sort of elements of context that cannot be defined by time. And I know, Bianca, something you want to talk about with, with this link was value-based pricing. Carly, so you talk a lot in this article about um, uh, why, I guess, like the the value-based pricing model and and the that being, I guess, your chosen model to use it at the studio. I'm, I'm, and I'm wondering, I mean, I think we all kind of uh, maybe on this podcast understand the value of value-based pricing, but um, were there any particular experiences or learnings or anything kind of like along the way that really, um, I guess, pushed you in the direction of charging the way that you do and impacted the way that you have chosen to price your work? Oh, absolutely. And I would say this is a tough one. A lot of people have a lot of feels about pricing. I think pricing is an intensely uh, emotional thing, especially because you're putting uh, a numeric value, a fiscal value on the work and your time and how you value yourself. Uh, And so there's no one size fits all solution. But for us, this came from, especially I'd say my freelance experience informed a lot of how we began the conversations as a studio talking about how we would price our work. It came down to thinking critically about how we wanted to position ourselves. I think as a freelancer, oftentimes we were have I was having these conversations around how much time something would take me. Could I do it faster? What if it needed to be done by Friday? And those were not the conversations that uh, really spoke to the value that the work had or what it could do or kind of how we could make the best possible end product. And so I think a lot of it was primarily wanting to shift the conversation more about the value of the work, um, as well as even looking at our future as a studio, uh, seeing the limitations around pricing ourselves hourly in terms of how it would allow us to scale long-term looking at how you could only charge a certain number for your hours and to continue to grow, you have to either increase that rate or add more people. And that didn't feel very sustainable either. Oh, definitely. It's it's so interesting because it's not a new model by any means. You know, a lot of design studios and, and advertising agencies still very much um, follow uh, an hourly rate model. Um, and one of the things that just to pull out like a, something from your guide, you say at the core of value pricing is the idea that you must understand the value you bring to your client. I'm curious from everyone, Jeremy, maybe you can answer this. How can we better communicate our value? And for some of our listeners, do you have any tips on on doing that? It's hard to kind of go into this in too much detail without giving away some of the secret sauce. That is a big kind of thing that, you know, that really kind of defines a lot of kind of creative businesses, how they work kind of in that, you know, in, in that space. I think one, I think articles like this are is a great way to kind of do that in some ways in terms of kind of developing a reputation for kind of, um, you know, demonstrating that you know what you're talking about. So I think there's, you know, this is project like this, I really kind of enjoy because they're very kind of generous for the creative community, but they also act as a really great piece of of marketing as well. Um, 
I really kind of also like the fact that the initial kind of thrust of this piece deals with kind of money in, in a way that kind of lists all you, you want to kind of put all these expenses down. I actually would have liked to see that actually kind of broken down to some actual kind of examples and have that and to see this um, process almost kind of flipped around to be an article designed kind of for clients rather than kind of creatives because I was kind of doing some of those numbers in my head and be like, oh my God, like these things are really, really expensive. And I think one thing that I've always kind of struggled with in a creative business is that, you know, cost of living and cost and expenses go up every year pretty much for kind of everybody but creative wages and kind of salaries like seem to kind of really have been stagnating this is something that's been on my mind kind of at the moment moving on is my link for the week and this is something that i was so excited to chat about um this is because you're 12 because i'm 12 um anything involving farting i think is automatically funny um and you know it's also good to see kind of the word farting unicorn in a guardian um headline which was Uh, look it's probably not the first time (laughs) it's a guardian elon musk drawn into farting unicorn dispute with potter i kind of also thought like that like you know like Exactly. Yeah, That's what, like, I, <laughs> I thought the I, same thing. You know they were kind of thinking of that while writing the headline. So the thrust of this piece is really interesting. There is a um, a, a potter size, you know, sculptor who makes these mugs and he made a mug of an, a unicorn farting electricity powering a car. And then this was somehow kind of seen, um, you know, in the kind of Tesla universe. And then they made their own version um, and basically kind of put it in, you know, as an, as an Easter egg kind of in the car and kind of use it for some kind of other, other holiday promotion. Um, Elon Musk kind of tweeted it out himself as well. And basically, yeah, the Potter kind of then sued Tesla, um, you know, for copyright infringement for using his image without any compensation. And this kind of started a bit of a Twitter, um, uh, tirade from Elon himself kind of basically saying that, suing would be totally lame not totally but he said it would be lame um and that like saying that you know he should have gotten um he should be happy for the exposure that he got from this and yes i had all sorts of feels when reading this article i'm curious um what's the opinion on elon musk right now in america um do you have any kind of thoughts on him as an individual i was pretty frustrated rereading this article i had seen the twitter debate unfold i just feel like one, he should let his employees unionize. Um, but also, it's like, it just feels like even playing devil's advocate feels like a bad take here. It's like someone like Elon Musk, who is literally dating an artist, has no excuse for ripping off artists and using their work without permission. As a creator, it's like personally triggering because these legal battles are so costly. Like, there's no way that an independent artist, let alone a studio, can go after some of these large corporations. And you're really left no recourse other than like taking the battle to social media, uh, which if you follow Elon Musk and you are even remotely aware of his following, it's I'm sure he has so many, so many white dudes are about to like take this potter apart and just destroy his website, destroy his reviews. They're just, it's a, it's a total troll mob. I've tuned out to Elon Musk himself, but I definitely agree that to say that it would be lame to sue and that like really to, I guess, minimize the, the value of, of art is, is actually really awful. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the one piece from this article that really kind of got me the most is that they're saying that Tesla gained no financial benefit from the image, which I just think is a kind of a crazy thing to say because there's that's the whole thing about, you know, kind of using artwork and I think design in general. And it's so, I mean, some people could argue that you should and 
good design should be able to kind of be measured kind of financially. But so much stuff kind of in the brand space, especially for a company like Tesla, I kind of think the fact that like if they're kind of showing some really kind of cute, you know, unicorn drawing in this kind of Easter egg in the car, that has huge financial benefit because that's kind of adding to their what they're kind of show what, what how they're trying to display and you know signify kind of what their brand actually means in this kind of way um so yeah like, i just feel that it's such a, a crazy tone deaf argument for someone i don't know for a company like that i also feel i feel quite bad for the artist um i think the artist tom edwards um i feel bad for him i think from all his statements it, it, it comes across that he's really truly not someone who's just looking to score sort of a big payday but wanting to stand up for, for artist rights and just sort of get the acknowledgement that he deserves by law um and i think elon musk comes across as one of these sort of disney villains who started out as a good guy with great intentions and over time has sort of become corrupted by money and power and obviously he's you know he's an incredibly powerful man who has contributed contributed an enormous amount to science and technology but um i read this great line somewhere that uh musk is in the business of selling a vision of the future and he buys into that vision because it involves his companies securing the future of humanity <laughs> and i think that's right i think he wants the world to be a better place but only if he controls it as an almighty all-powerful tech god and and what he's done here i think is is it's it's bullshit and it's greedy and it's um uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's true. You were talking about, Jeremy, um, playing devil's advocate, you know, and, and whether there's any merit to the fact that the exposure the artist received from this, you know, would have actually made him more money and raised his profile in ways that, that wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have been able to otherwise because that was something that, that Elon tweeted at his daughter or something that, like, you know, I promoted his art for free. He should be grateful, oh. um, which makes me, makes my blood boil. But, you know, I think it, it you know, sure, it's true that it, it elevated his work to some sort of platform, but while that is true, it's not something he ever granted permission for. And I think if Elon had come to him and said, hey, can we use your piece in this way in exchange for name credit and, you know, a massive amount of exposure and the artist had agreed to it, then yeah, sure. But it's still and always should be the artist's right to agree to that. He should have the say on what his piece is worth, not us and not Elon. And and that's where things get really yucky for me. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't want to kind of get like too political, but, but there's definitely kind of this whole kind of aspect of of consent, like just in kind of general and creative consent, I think is a huge part of this conversation and this thing that you cannot just assume anymore. I think that especially um, w one thing that's really interesting for me is just the fact that, um, as Carly mentioned, like so much with copyright infringement at the moment is kind of like shoot first, ask questions later. So many people will infringe copyright knowing that it is impossible to defend. And the, the way, and we've been in this position ourselves directly, and it can be really confronting that for copyright infringement cases or any kind of um, appropriation like this, it's um you really, unless you have huge pockets like to actually kind of prove it in court because like these are kind of, you know, um, civil matters. They're not kind of... Um, Criminal. Yeah, um, that like you can you can pretty much just get kind of railroaded um, by a situation like this. So I'm glad that it got attention. And I was also kind of really impressed in terms of how, like you said, how the lawyer kind of approached the letter by not kind of turning it into this kind of threatening thing because I think they were probably smart and knew they yeah, would react There was react no way this they way. could afford to uh, yeah. actually take them to court on anything. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought that was a smart approach. And I'm, I also like while we were um, doing this, um, I just was reminded, Carly, about, you know, you were kind of talking about um, Elon's defenders. <laughs> this was like this, this Twitter thread the other week about how people 
you know, this, this car, another Tesla kind of caught fire. Um, and then um, this guy, Peter Norway, says, if your Tesla catches fire out of the blue and you post about it, you're going to get a bunch of Tesla brand defenders telling your car catching fire is actually very normal and you should keep it to itself. And there's all these different um, people writing. You realize that gas vehicles sometimes catch fire, <laughs> burn up, right? I've watched it happen on the side of road myself, fire trucks and all. Oh, my God. It's so funny. I'm going to post oh, the link to it. There's an article that I will link to as well. We won't go into it too much, but just touching on that sort of his his troll mob um the outline did an amazing piece recently called um when you're elon musk a tweet is never just a tweet and it's sort of talking about like well does he have responsibility um to sort of factor in how his twitter mob are going to react to anything that he tweets because they do cause very very real damage to people um whether it's just sort of emotional or physical or what you know and and how um he he will often sort of pass things off as like, oh, it's just like a random tweet. Anyone, anyone would have tweeted this. But it's not because he's wielding this enormous army of people. Very interesting. We'll post a link to it. One other thing I wanted to kind of bring up was the fact that, that Tesla do have this kind of sketchpad kind of functionality. I'd be very interested to kind of dig into the terms and conditions of um, Tesla and cars like to see if, you know, what, what the kind of intellectual property and copyright um, exists for things that you kind of create there. And I think that's kind of something that we've um, been dealing with in, in a different kind of way as well in terms of when you post things to Instagram or Facebook or other kind of platforms, you know, what kind of rights are you giving away? And, um, you know, recently, you know, we discovered that, you know, a piece posted to Instagram, for example, Instagram was legally able to kind of use that for their kind of marketing because you automatically granted the rights from using that platform. Carly, as someone who kind of works in a lot of these kind of emerging tech platforms and has worked in a lot of tech companies where do you see kind of the intersection of you know copyrights and artist rights and kind of intersecting with the ability for companies to be able to exploit these rights and do things with it without kind of compromising their offering do you have any kind of opinions on that at all i remember when facebook was using your friends photos to advertise to you about like various facebook products and i remember how awful and icky that felt i think as a creator we have to be aware of where you're posting things and what the ownership stakes are there. I think, unfortunately, social media has become so necessary for marketing and promoting your work and making a name for yourself and owning whatever it is that you do. It actually reminds me a lot of even in art school, if uh, you attend art school quite frequently, and I'd say any university quite frequently, when you sign uh, your acceptance letter, you're uh, agreeing that anything you create on campus for the next uh, four years is owned by your college. I went to RISD, as, as you mentioned in the intro, but Seth MacFarlane got in a legal dispute with RISD over who owned Family Guy. And I, I remember that, that, I'd say that was my first realization. I was like, oh shit, like I need to be very aware of kind of what are the things that I'm signing? What am I agreeing by existing in various spaces and creating work there? And like, who owns your work? Because yeah, it's tricky. I want to take just a brief aside before we move, move on, because I'm just I'm also kind of curious to hear about how you deal with this in in your studio. Um, you know, this is kind of something that I know that a lot of my friends who run design studios have kind of grappled with. You know, they they especially when they're kind of doing when we're doing kind of quotes and we have kind of usage in our quotes are like, well, we're design studio. We don't charge our kind of clients for, you know, usage. All of our work is kind of work for hire. Um, you know, how come you aren't? I'm, I'm curious how you kind of respond to that or how you kind of have worked that into your own practice with value based pricing, as we were talking about sure. before. I'd say, well, right off the bat, we have a custom contract that we worked with our lawyer on that 
outlines this idea of HAREF building blocks, sort of whatever developmental or design-driven systems that we come up with for our clients that allows us to continue to use those as we work with future clients. Um, but beyond that, I do feel, similar to what you mentioned before, there it doesn't feel like there's much of a legal recourse. We do our best to protect ourselves when we enter relationships with clients. But once things are out in the world, we really try to let go. I think if someone is stealing, even like using bits of our code, we see it as you're building, hopefully you're building something better. Hopefully you're creating something new. Hopefully you're learning from it. Uh, but we really can't own too much after it leaves. I'd say when it comes to clients, we're a lot, we're obviously a lot more uh, defensive. We want to make sure that clients are not uh, taking value that we are not willingly consenting to giving them or profiting off of our work in ways that we have not consented to. Well, look, a lot of uh, ripe discussion coming out of a farting unicorn. So yeah, I think um, that's a, it's a, it's, it was a really great link to spark some discussion. So thank you to me for bringing it up. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm really glad that he did defend it because I think. Oh, you know, absolutely. I'm As sure you said, he's going to get all about so integrity. much black for it, but. I think it's important to stand up for the things that you believe in. And hopefully he moved the needle a little bit Definitely. towards the creators today. Yes. And as he said, you know, Elon Musk is not above interesting guy, but not above copyright. Speaking of being above copyright, we have a very interesting case that came out of the New York Times. Um, and Laura, would you like to tell us about this for your link this week? Uh, yes, I'm dying. This is hilarious. <laughs> so in 2010, uh, the U.S. Postal Service released a special and very successful Statue of Liberty stamp. Uh, and then four months later, <laughs> after three billion stamps had already been printed, they were notified by some eagle-eyed people that there was something a little bit off with the image. Uh, uh, and as it turns out, the Postal Service had sourced the image on Getty Images and completely missed the fact that the photo was not of the Lady Liberty that most people know, the one gifted to America by the people of France, but was in fact a sexy replica that sits outside <laughs> a casino in Las Vegas. So, yeah, look, the story goes that... um. After they were notified of their mistake, they released some statements saying that they still love the design and would have selected this photograph anyway, just trying to sort of cover themselves. Um, so, yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, then they continued to use the photo for almost three years, selling more than $5 billion of them and making more than $2 billion or um, $70 million in profit, basically. So at this point, Robert S. Davidson, who's the artist behind the sexy, sexy replica, um, he sued the United States Postal Service service for copyright infringement. And after a sort of drawn out battle, a federal judge has just ruled that Davidson's replica is significantly different enough to the Statue of Liberty to be considered original and uh, ordered the Postal Service to pay damages of 3.5 million dollars to the artist, which is basically 5% of the $70 million profits. Um, so the story itself, I mean, it's hilarious for the mere fact that a sexy statue could be mistaken for an American icon. But, you know, that aside, it is also another enormous statement on, on artist rights, particularly given that the artwork at the center of the discussion is in itself a derivative piece. Um, I do have to say, though, <laughs> There is one very key thing that I do not understand, and that's not why someone would make this <laughs> statue in the first place that I get. Um, it, it, I might just be missing something really obvious. And I would love someone to explain it to me. Um, it's been reported that the U.S. Postal Service paid a $1,500 fee to Getty Images for the right to license the artwork. You know, And while it is really funny that they chose the wrong photo, I don't understand why they 
they didn't still have the rights to use the photo, given that they paid the license for it. Like, I'm, I'm clearly missing oh something. Oh, my God. There's so much to unpack in this article. I mean, it's the, the one the one that we're going to refer to is the New York Times one. And I should also just kind of clarify all of your um, comments about um, how sexy this um, version is, is because that was a big defense of the artist here, because he was saying that his version was sexier and more fresh faced. Ew, um, I have to say as well, it was based on his like mother-in-law or yeah, something. No, so, like, so, okay, so that's, that's one bit that's really, really interesting. There's so many juicy bits in here. An- another thing is the fact that how I cannot believe how many stamps they sold. That's also kind of crazy. Another thing, they kind of also say how much the artist earned from the piece, which was $233,000 to create the statue after manufacturing costs. So that was his creative fee for just getting it, which I thought was also yeah, really Yeah, we are pricing ourselves wrong. Yeah, exactly. Where's the va- There's some serious value-based pricing happening there. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, the Getty Images thing is crazy. Well, another bit, like, okay, $1,500. Like, if you go through the Getty Image Calculator and you enter in, okay, we're going to be printing 5 million stamps from this. I don't know if you get 15 Yeah, um, that's where I don't know. I, I'm really confused there because obviously, I mean, 3.5 million in damages is no token amount. So obviously we're missing something. I think I would understand if they'd gone and taken a photo of themselves or they just ripped it from the web somewhere without licensing it, but they did license yeah. it. So I'm trying, I'm confused about what the breach is. One thing, one thing I read that hinted at an explanation was that the license only covered the rights to the photograph of the statue and not the statue itself. But in that case, isn't the issue then with the photographer, like who's licensing the work that he has no li- rights to sort of to license? And why has no one explained this? It's, Help. it's really, really confusing. Like, yeah, like surely like is why isn't Getty, you know, or, you know, why aren't, why aren't they kind of talked about more kind of prominently here? I actually did put a call out to um, Yasmin, our lawyer from Media Arts Lawyer, for her comment. So I'm hoping to have maybe a bit of an update next week, more on the legal side of things. But mm. I'm curious um, for um, Bianca or Carly, has this story kind of reached you oh, guys absolutely. at all? <laughs> I was the one that brought this to our oh. <laughs> professional development channel. <laughs> um, I saw it on Twitter. And I feel professionally developed. I do. (laughs) Definitely familiar with this stamp. I feel like I've seen it everywhere. So I understand that how it sold so many, but I too am utterly confused about the nuances of licensing from Getty images and then being responsible. I mean, I have to believe that maybe the image wasn't supposed to be licensed in that way, or uh, I, I, I don't understand that. That's a good point. I mean, I, I think it could be the fact that maybe even Getty was due. Maybe Getty thought it was the actual Statue of Liberty and didn't realize that it was the the sculpture. I don't know. But I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. It's like, But it's not about what Getty th- – I mean, the, the photographer would have uploaded it with the tags and with the – like, it's a photographer who's misled people because he would know that it's not – I mean, you hope he knew it wasn't <laughs> the real Statue of Liberty. <laughs> well, it is. Or she, but yes. Yeah, I mean – it's, it's this is kind of such an interesting case because it's really kind of just such a flip on you know the, our previous link that we were kind of talking about where you know I could really kind of see how someone was definitely kind of exploited there but when you're talking about something like this that kind of is a replica um, but then you have some really like I don't know like I I look at this replica and I don't kind of see the major differences but no not at is all. that a shortcoming of of me like you know I I feel. I feel in a real difficult position trying to figure out kind of who whose side to take here. Um, Carly, I mean, when you look at a situation like this, what do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'd say it's nice that we're talking about this alongside the farting unicorn to unsuspecting, very relevant, creative works in that regard. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know who's wrong here. I mean, it definitely feels like uh, the USPS certainly has enough struggles 
financially that it's unfortunate to hear that they've made this very expensive mistake, but it sounds like perhaps it wasn't their mistake. Yeah. And I don't, even when they realized, I don't like, it's funny that the, you know, how they sort of backtracked and they're like, oh yeah, you know, we, we would have picked this anyway. This wasn't a mistake. (laughs) But I still don't think there was any sort of malicious moves there. Like, I don't think they knew they were doing anything wrong because again, they thought, oh, we paid for the license. We've just picked the wrong picture. Yeah. Look, it's so, it's so interesting. I think I definitely want to kind of hear more. I don't want to kind of see kind of where this goes. I know that in a recent um, defamation case, the one with Rebel Wilson, like, you know, she won kind of $4.4 million from a local magazine publisher and here. Then it got appealed. And then it got appealed. And like, you know, now she's had to give all of it back. So I'm very kind of curious to see kind of if this definitely goes kind of further through the legal system. If that happened to me, I definitely would have spent it all before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we will kind of keep some updates on this and post the link as we do to our show notes every week. Carly, our last link of the week is all yours. And this is um, two weeks in a row from It's Nice That Making an Appearance on the podcast. Tell us a bit about this and why you chose it. Yeah. So big It's Nice That fan. I stumbled upon this excerpt from Alice Roththorne's book, Design as an Attitude, which I love the name of. I'm excited to read it once. I've already pre-ordered it on Amazon. This is not a pitch. This sounds like a pitch. Um, but it was another reminder of Uh, just a lot of the issues that we face in our industry aren't particularly new uh, and how pervasive uh, gender bias is in design, Uh, particularly the anecdote around uh, Le Corbusier. Uh, The Le Corbusier uh, anecdote was another reminder of personally one of my favorite designers and the people that we put on pedestals and just how we need to burn the whole system to the ground. And Alice is a design writer for the New York Times. She's also an order of an OBE. Um, what? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. Queen's Honor, officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Damn, I want one so bad. Yeah, well, you I know. i do something in my life. She knows what she's talking about. I, I don't know, like, how I kind of felt about this piece. It's like, yeah, like, I kind of agreed with everything in there. And I kind of think this is kind of something that's already actively happening. And articles like this are a great way to remind people, especially kind of design leaders, that this is something that you need to kind of actively um, think about and actively make the change that you want to see in our industry. But I, I don't know, like, I kind of felt it was a bit kind of light on in kind of some ways. Obviously, it's only an excerpt in kind of a larger book. But I'm, you know, curious, Carly, how do you actually kind of implement these policies like as a designer, as someone who kind of runs a business? Like, how do you kind of translate this into action, you know, within your own practice? Yeah, and I agree. I'm eager to read the rest of the book because it is only a, a snippet. And I don't know that there's anything particularly actionable within the article itself. Um, my hope is by continuing to talk about this stuff as if it is just uh, obvious and blatantly clear, then hopefully the debate around whether sexism and gender bias is does exist in our industry will stop being up for debate because I feel like I still have those conversations with other designers around whether this is an issue or whether this is something that is actually still happening. I'd say in terms of how we actually apply it to our work, I think it is uh, actively checking the lineups for speaker conferences or uh, the resumes and portfolios we're looking at for future hiring or internship applications. It's kind of taking an active interest and a critical eye to the people who are lined up for these roles and prioritizing people who perhaps are not being chosen for those roles. It seems to me that like design as a profession is kind of an enclave of very kind of left-wing liberal kind of thinkers and that a lot of the kind of comments here, 
yeah, wouldn't be kind of very controversial to the majority of kind of designers. But I'm kind of curious, um, Bianca, like, how do you see it, you know, coming from Australia into kind of New York? I know from my own experience growing up and living in New York that it is a pretty liberal kind of place as well. But do you kind of see that, you know, do you kind of see this kind of bias in any kind of ways, like in the design industry, you know, being on the inside now? Um, well, it's funny, Carly, I think we met through Ladies Get Paid, which is obviously an organization which is all about um, giving a platform and a resource for women and for, I guess, closing the gender gap um, for women especially. It started in the creative industry. And there's definitely more of a discussion around it about diversity and inclusivity um, here in the States, more so than I ever really have noticed in Melbourne, which I think is a little bit of a bubble. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's more conversation, which I think is really good, but there's also a much bigger population and more voices to be heard from. So I don't really know, but there's definitely more conversation. But um, yeah, I mean, I like that, you know, there's a, there is a lot of, you know, big personalities here are actually using their platform and their privilege and their voice for good things. Like I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with someone like um, Timothy Goodman, who you could argue very much fits the surface description of privileged white male, you know, part of the the boys club of designers. But over the past few years, it's been interesting to see how he's really tried to, you know, use his platform and his voice to help recognize and support equally talented individuals who don't have the same visibility of him. I mean, he um, is someone that is very vocal about the um, the terms that he would actually, you know, join a speaking panel now because he's had such a great opportunity to speak and, and wants to pass that on to someone else. Um, and has also, you know, started a website, People Craft, which we, which is a resource for, um, some diverse voices in the creative industry, which we touched on in our episode with Franca Gugliario. Um, yeah. Amelie Lamont also worked on that website. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like she always gets missed from that narrative does that say a lot I mean uh, yeah I mean I was just it, he just came to mind because I know that he has a pin tweet um at the like at the top of his Twitter feed that's basically like you know hey um don't invite me to speak at your conference unless you're committed to making it inclusive he was the very first person that came to mind and really one of the first people that I like actually came across that was pushing back against um uh, conferences in general and trying to and you know and he has a very like interesting voice just because of his platform one thing that i kind of um picked up out of this is tying it back to the first link is the kind of decision tree that um you use at horref to whether you want to kind of take on a client and i mean it seems like something like this is something that you kind of could work into that kind of framework in some way um as well is that something that 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 you have kind of worked in there it's not no it definitely could be a piece of that yeah i i have to agree i feel very similar you know it's uh Speaking as a cis white woman, I, I am aware that I have it better than most. So I guess my hope is by continue, continuing to have these conversations, we're hopefully bringing them to light and bringing them into uh, normalizing them as part of a larger dialogue. But there's definitely huge groups of people who are not getting the same attention. Even being on this podcast now, you know, it's like, should I have uh, passed someone along? But well, yeah, it might be worth us getting someone in eventually who can speak to another perspective because all of us aren't really directly sort of um, affected by these sorts of things. And I think it's important that we, I think part of the whole point of the article is that it's important that you're 
actually not just talking about these other voices but allowing those other voices to be heard and yours to sort of be silenced for a bit. Yeah, and she mm. makes a good point um, actually that, you know, diversity is an important factor in designing better. Um, and what she says is the rest of us suffer too if you believe that design plays an important part in organising our lives and in defining the objects, imagery, technologies and spaces that fill them. It stands to reason that we need designers of the highest calibre but we will not get them unless they come from every area of society, not just from one gender. Or not just from one place or whatever it is. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we will post the link to this excerpt along with everything else that we talked about this episode on our podcast page at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. And otherwise, we will wrap it up for this week. Ending as we like to every week um, is a, well, we're trying to do new thing now. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Need Still need a better name for that segment. We're working on it. Um, if we have anything to um, endorse, disendorse, kind of talk about. Disendorse? Some, disendorse. Is that a word? Dusseldorf? Dusseldorf. <laughs> if we have anything to Dumbledore. <laughs> Laura, what about you? Um, anything? Thumbs up, thumbs down on anything this it's week? It's me, Jeremy. I'm only ever thumbs down. I'm sticking, <laughs> I'm sticking with thumbs down forever. Uh, this is my chance. Well, one of my many chances throughout the day to complain, but this is my chance to complain with an audience, and so I'm going to take it. Um, I experienced something this morning that I haven't in a, in a long time. Uh, on my way to the train station, I walked through uh, what can only sort of be called, I guess, um, a lynx cloud. And anyone who's ever spent any time around <laughs> boys aged anywhere from sort of 13 to 15 will have experienced a lynx cloud. Um, you mean the hour shower? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a teenage shower. Um and uh, whoever had committed the crime had left already. There was no one around, <laughs> but there was this horrendous um, sort of s- smog of of what was could only be Lynx Africa, um, and it, it lasted for a good like four meters, I reckon, as I walked through it. And I reckon it's on me now. Like I'm the stench has sort of permeated my pores. And anyway, um, it was it was pretty intense, and I really felt like I was in a in a sort of locker room at a cricket club and I did not enjoy it. I just um was Googling Lynx Cloud and I found that there's an accountant's called Lynx Cloud Accountants, which like Oh Jesus <laughs> What is, is Lynx Africa? Oh God, oh. Lynx is a brand of deodorant L Y N X. L Y N X that is owned um by the same like Dove people who I think it would be called the the American equivalent would be Axe. Oh yeah. Maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah. kind of like you know hyper masculine um, you know, body spray deodorant. But it's like just scent. Like none of there's no actual like deodorizing antiperspirant. It's just this like horrendous scent that is just very, very, very specific to like young teenage boys. And it was oh, it was full on. Yeah, there's a lot wrong with links. Um, Carly, is there anything you would like to particularly voice a grievance or approval on this week in your life? No, no, I don't. I don't think I have anything. I'm. I'm generally. I'll. I'll give everything a thumbs up. I'll. Uh, I'll balance out the links. I'll say life has been pretty good recently, and I'll give it a thumbs up, despite the heat, despite <laughs> uh, window AC units sweating through my clothes. I probably could use some links. Those sound like honest. thumbs down. I'm gonna give to them me. <laughs> two thumbs up. I mean, I'll give a thumbs down for like general American sentiment, but thumbs up for my my individual life in this point in time. Fair enough. Um, B, what do you got? Anything? I mean, my thumbs down is that my air conditioning vent in my bedroom is just not working and I don't have a ladder and I just don't know how to fix it. 
apart from getting the super back, but I've like I've honestly tried to get him to fix it three times, and I don't. I just don't know what's happening. It's my only task. Rabbit is that a thing? That's a thing in America, right? That's a thing. Jeremy, what about you? Do you have anything to complain about or to uh, or to promote? This week, I am enthusiastic. Four thumbs, two thumbs, two toes up for. Ew, sorry. Anyway, two thumbs up (laughs) for my new mustache. I, uh, I'm giving two thumbs down. No, I'm kidding. You look beautiful, Jeremy. You know, I've had I've had long hair and a beard for many many years, um, and I just had had enough of it. And I went to the barber shop to have it all taken off. But like you know, wh- like there was just like a revelation. Like as he started kind of shaving the beard, the mustaches emerged, and we were all just like, "Wait, we need to kind of see this through." The and real so, you, the real me, has emerged, and I, I just feel like you know, I mean you just have to adopt a whole different kind of personality for the mustache. And I feel like, I just feel the most Australian that I've ever felt. I mean, which is, I don't know. Give just, us your accent. That's not going to happen ever on this podcast. <laughs> never, never going to happen. But yeah, that, that is my thumbs up. So I recommend mustaches to everyone. Cool. No who Stop you are. Yeah, I know. Remember you, coming you, up. Let's do it. I'm Mexican. I can grow a mustache. Exactly. Um, look, thank you very much, B, for thank this you. week. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. And Carly, if people want to find out more about you or Horaf, where should they look? I would say the best place to find me is likely on Twitter at Carly Ayers or at Horaf INTL. Actually, I give 10,000 thumbs up to Carly. <laughs> it's a lot of spicy hot takes, not a, <laughs> poorly thought out, <laughs> poorly articulated, but occasionally good. There's a lot of pie tweets, too. Excellent. Well, we'll put all of those links um, all over our variety of web properties um, and we'll call it a week. This has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast about creative project management and production and just making things happen in general. Our producer is original. You can find the Jackie Winter Group on mostly Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and winter like the season. And you can email us with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcast at JackieWinter.com. To receive all the links we talk about on the show each week in one neat little email, you can sign up to our podcast-specific newsletter at tinyletter.com slash Jackie Winter. And archives of all of our shows and show notes can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouTheDuckBiz. Our theme music is by Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on SoundCloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you love what you hear, you can help us out by subscribing on iTunes, rating us, give us a comment as well if you can. It helps people find the show. Details are on our website at JackieWinter.GivesYouTheDuckBiz. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.